It is about a relationship, and God invites us into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And what we see in scriptures is that Jesus says that if you'll follow me, you'll have life that is more abundant, a life that is more full than in doing things on your own. And, and let's just be honest, that invitation sounds really good many of the times, but what you have to think about is when you define life as more abundant, when you define life as more full, most of us have an idea of what would make our life better, amen? We have an idea of, we think, okay, well, my life would be better if only, and then you could fill in the blank. Man, if I just had more money, or if I had a better job, or if I had this relationship, or if I hadn't have done this thing, or if I at times, life is messy, or if I get this right or that right, and so life is complicated at times. Life is messy at times, and yet what Scripture teaches us is that God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, that who would ever believe in him would not perish but would find eternal life. And we talked about this in this sermon series called Invited to Life, is that a lot of times we, we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to think about life, and especially the Christian life, kind of like this. We think, okay, well, Jesus came, and he forgave me of my sins, and I believe in him, and one day, uh, when this life is over, then I'll spend eternity with him in heaven. And that is true, but at times we don't think about, well, what about this life? What do I do today? What do I do tomorrow? How do I, how do I live life today? Because what Scripture actually teaches is that Jesus didn't come only so that we have life that begins after this one, but that we could experience the fullness of life now. But oftentimes we don't do that. Sometimes it's because we choose not to follow him. Sometimes it's because we're actually pursuing our idea of life, but we're trying to make it sound like it's a Christian thing to do at times. And really what we need to pursue is what, what the scriptures teach us about life. And that's what we've been looking at in this series. A couple of weeks ago, we started out by saying to find the life that Jesus Christ has for us, we're invited to connect. Uh, God created us to connect with him and to connect with one another, and he's given us a great place to do that, known as the church, and we have an opportunity to connect with the church. You know, today's culture and, and people today will say, well, you know, I can hear sermons online, which you can, um, and I can learn things online, which you, which you can, and I can read my Bible on my own, which you can. All those things are true, but God actually designed us to connect with him and with one another, and he's given us the great opportunity to do that within a church. Because within a church, we connect with other people, we serve other people, we get to live out our giftedness, and we find life that only happens in that way of doing things. It's messy, uh, it's frustrating at times. You know why? Because in a church, there's still people. <laughs> and, and we all have our own issues, and we all have things that we bring to the table. But God wants us to understand that we find the fullness of life when we connect with others in his church. And so he invites us to connect with him in that way. Last week, we looked at the fact that he invites us to pray. That part of the Christian life is praying because it is a relationship. And so that means that, that we talk to God. We share with him the things that are on our hearts. And he speaks to us in prayer as well. It is a relationship with the living God that we get when we have the life that comes in only pursuing God, we are invited to pray. And you see, you have to think about this. When I think I want my life to be better, what comes to mind for you? Because when Scripture talks about having 
more life. It also talks about the way that we get that is to pursue Jesus. And so many people will have a moment when they say, I want that life that they're talking about at that church. I want the life that Scripture's talking about, but for some reason they fall away. And, and Jesus talks about this. He talks about a parable one time in Matthew where he talks about a sower who sowed seed. And he said there were different kinds of, of seed that went out and some got snatched up right away. Some sprouted up and then it burned. and Some got choked and then just some of the seed actually grew. And he was like, well, what is this talking about? This is what he says in Matthew chapter 13. He says, listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom of God and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one that's sown along the path. And the one that's sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word immediately and receives it with joy, but has no root and is short-lived. And when, look at this, when distress our persecution comes because of the word, immediately they fall away. He talks about the third soil. Now, the one sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit, who yields some 100, some 60, and some 30 times what was sown. So what, what are we saying then about life? Is that you have an opportunity to accept the invitation that Jesus gives to follow him and to find life. But Jesus himself, as he offers this invitation to everyone, understands the difficulty of it. Some people want to accept it, but then they accept it real quick and then things get tough and then they just fade away and they forget about it. Anybody know anybody like that? Don't raise your hand and don't look to your right or your left right now. But you know someone who's experienced that, who had a moment that maybe they were even baptized like the, we, these we saw today and then for some reason, six months or six years later, you can't find them in a church, you can't find them walking, well, what happened? Well, things got tough. There wasn't any foundation, there wasn't any root, and they fell away. Or maybe it's some that are like the, the ones that are sown among the thorns that they get to following Christ and then life happens, right? Because it's going to happen, and things get difficult, and we get distracted, and other priorities become there, and then I think that maybe I can handle this better, or I don't, you know, I'll put God over here, or I need this here, and then it just kind of chokes itself away, and then there's nothing there anymore well, why not? Because they're choosing different things, and then where's the faith? It's not there. But then Christ does say that then there are those who actually believe. They take the word of God, and they put it in their heart, and they desire to live it out, and they desire to follow God. And then this is what it says. It says that the people who do that, that the word of God begins to grow in their life, and it begins to produce fruit. Now, I want you to think about that. What does that mean? That the word of God, my pursuit of him, it leads me to a place where it begins to produce fruit in my life. Well, well what does that mean? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. We're looking in 1 Thessalonians, and we're using the book of 1 Thessalonians as a guide, if you will, to how Paul was writing to the church. And this, this in particular for this week, Paul's talking to them about love. We've been invited to connect. We've been invited to pray, and then Paul wants to talk to them about what it means to love. 
He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 9, he says, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. I just want to pause there for just a second. I know for some of you this may be the first time here, and, and we're glad for that. We want to catch you up here a little bit. Paul's writing this book, 1 Thessalonians, because he had gone there and he had planted a church and he had gone away on other mission trips and he's trying to find out what's going on in Thessalonica. He sends his friend Timothy. Timothy comes back and gives him a report that says, man, they're doing it great in Thessalonica. And so Paul's writing this letter as, as some affirmation to what they're doing. And what Paul's actually confirming them on is the work that they are doing. And I want to say that again. Paul is saying to the church that you are doing well because of your work. Not because of your faith, not because of your love, not because of your gentleness, not because of your friendliness, but man, the work that you're doing because of your love and your faith and your kindness and your gentleness is making such an impact. And so he continues to encourage them throughout the book. And in this particular point, he's coming and he's wanting to encourage them about the love that they have for one another. But he, he uses the phrase, I don't even need to write to you about love. And the reason I don't need to write to you about love is because as a follower of Christ, you are taught by God to love one another. That's what we're taught. And so we have an invitation not only to connect with the church, with God, with one another, we have an invitation not only to pray, but if we want to find the full life that Jesus has for us, we're invited to love one another. And in this culture, at this point in time, that is a beautiful invitation. Because it's difficult to find love in our culture at times. We have a lot of disagreements. We have a culture that believes you can't disagree with someone and love them. I just go, have a child. You know, figure that one out, okay? You know, I mean, you just like, come on. You can disagree with people and still fully love these people. That's ridiculous. So what does it mean to love? And Paul writes, I don't even need to tell you about this because as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are ever wondering if there's one thing that you have permission to do at all times, it's to love one another. And the love that we see in Scripture is not just love those who love you. It's love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's love the believers. It's love your family. It's love the lost. It's love anybody that you can. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why Paul says, I don't even need to write about this. But then he gives some encouragement followed by some instruction. In verse 10 he says, in fact, you're already doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. See, this church was doing the work in such a good way that they were making an impact all over their region. And he says, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, do even more of this. And this is how he tells them to do this. Verse 11, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to mind your own business. One more time, to mind your own business. And to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Okay, so Paul is saying in the context of love and in what the church is doing, man, you guys are doing this right. The work that you're doing is making such an impact. And you need to continue to do even more of this because that's what it means 
to love. And as you do this more and more, then seek to lead a quiet life. Meaning, don't shine a spotlight on you every time you do something good and go, look at me, I did something good, I need a cookie. You know, all these type of things. You don't, you don't live in such a way, just, just do the things that you're supposed to do. Seek to just be a quiet, humble person that lives a life. And when he says, mind your own business, what he's actually saying is, don't get involved in everybody else's business and listen to me. He's also saying that as a believer, don't burden others with convictions that God has given you. Let me say it this way. That there, there are times that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you begin to discover that as we do more of what God's word says, he begins to change our hearts, our lives, our minds, our ideas, the things that we do. And we might pick up some new habits. We might pick up some things. And that, those usually come out of a process of following God and that sometimes they take some time to develop in our life. And then we have other people in our life who we love and we care about and we want the same thing for them. We want them to experience the joy and the, and the journey of following and you fill in the blank. Well, you just got to do this more. We just got to go hear this person. You got to do these things. You gotta, and so what that's called, that's called legalism. And what Paul's saying is mind your own business. And you need to love one another, but you don't need to burden one another with things that God may be doing in your heart. And, and you need to allow God to work in their lives. And so when he says to mind your own business, he's saying just continue to, to work out your faith and to love one another and let God do that in other people's lives as well. Don't go around getting involved into everybody else's stuff. Just love them. Just love them. That's what he's telling you to do. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people, not ours. And so that's what happens. And then he says that phrase, and to work with your own hands. You know, to work with your own hands, what he's actually saying there is, is you need to be able to take care of yourself. You don't need to be lazy. You need to do your part. You need to participate. And I, also, I always feel the need when, when we say something like this. I want to be very careful with something. We all have seasons of life when we need one another. Paul wouldn't possibly be saying, hey, you need to love one another. You need to serve one another. You need to do all these things. And you need to be a hermit and live on your own and not bother anybody else. That's, that's not what he's saying salvation and to come together as a church and to continue to live out your faith and your salvation and to serve and love other people and to pray to God and as you do these things then you need to do your part find that place where you pick up the slack and when you serve and you do other people don't expect that everybody should always be doing things for you all the time can we just stop for a minute and I'm gonna preach for just a second okay we live in a culture that people approach church by asking the question, well, what are they going to do for me? Or what am I going to get out of that church? I'm going to tell you what you're going to get out of church. Whatever it is that you put into it. It's exactly how it works. And this is what Paul is saying there, is that we need to live in such a way where we want to do our part, not just come and take and come and take. But we don't want to be lazy. We want to participate in it and we want to give. Now, we all have seasons of need. And we all have times when we're supposed to come together and love on one another. And so I will also say to some of us, don't be prideful either. Don't be that person who comes and goes, I never have any needs and I'm always good. That's not true for any of us because that's why God gave us the church as well. 
Sometimes it can be simple as I need a ride somewhere. Sometimes it can be as complicated as can you watch this, handle this, take care of this, help me here, come clean my house, come home. Anything that we can do to help and serve people, that's what we're supposed to do. But what Paul's saying is if the church is coming together and doing this for one another, we're all working and doing our part, and we continue to do this more and more, and we do this in the love that Christ has given us, then we are going to make the most significant impact ever. Not just in the lives of others, but is life. What we need to realize is love is life. That's it. Love is life. You see, when, when Jesus invites us to life, he's inviting us into a love like no other. He's inviting us to a love that can, only, that can only be comprehended in knowing and pursuing and following him. And that love begins to be the foundation of all things in life, period. It is a pure love. It is a true love. It is a godly love. It's not a love that's been messed up by our culture or by our experiences or by our own selfish desires. It is the most pure love that you will ever experience in your life. And so what Jesus says about it, when he's asked about all the commandments, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow God? How do I experience this life? You realize that there were over 600 commands in the Old Testament that the Pharisees were trying to live out. They even made commands to make sure that they took care of the commands. That's how they were living their life, just trying to do everything to the letter of the law. And so they came to Jesus one time and said, what's the most important thing to do? And Jesus answered with these words. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hangs on the ability of hands. Jesus basically said everything that you will do in life hangs on the ability to love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. So love is life. As a matter of fact, we understand it so much so that when Jesus is inviting us to life and he's inviting us to be able to love, that he comes into our heart, he transforms us, he forgives us, forgives us of our sins, and invites us to follow him each day. The more that we do that, the more that we begin to experience life the way that Jesus wanted it. And it leads us to a better life. Better than anything that you could imagine that your life would have been before. John writes it this way in his letter, 1 John, as he wrote to the churches. He says this, we know, we being the followers of Jesus Christ, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in action or in truth. You see, John was trying to describe there a different type of love than what just might be talked about or felt. He's saying, no, we understand that we have the capacity to love when we've moved from pursuing earthly things that lead to death, and now we're pursuing the godly things that lead to life. 
we know that we have passed from death to life because we have the ability to love our brothers and sisters. And let's be honest, all of us at some point in time are pretty unlovable, starting right here. We get that. But when we have the ability to love people, even in their brokenness, that is a marker that we're, we're beginning to understand what life with Christ is like. Now, John, the person saying this, this is what's funny about John. John had a nickname as one of the disciples. John and his brother had a nickname. Anybody here ever had a nickname? Okay, you get nicknames. You usually get nicknames by doing something, right? And, or, or by having some, you know, something about you that's different. For example, get together at night, and, you know, that I was leading a while back. We were on a mission trip, and on our mission trip, we'd get together at night, and, you know, before everybody kind of got ready for the next day, might play some games or do something. And, and we had this kid named Jake, and Jake comes in one night, and he's like, I'm hungry. I'm like, Jake, man, we've already put the kitchen up. Everything's done. We don't want to get anything out. Because you have anything. So, Jake, we, we go in the kitchen, and we find a gallon Ziploc bag full of biscuits from that morning. Jake ate the whole bag. Jake is now a lawyer, but every time we talk, hey, Biscuit, what's going on? Because Jake is forever known as Biscuit. That's it, just Biscuit. That's his name. How did he get the name Biscuit? Because he ate a gallon bag of it. I mean, just that's where it comes from. So we know that a lot of times nicknames will have some meaning. Well, John had a nickname, John and his brother. John and his brother were known as the Sons of Thunder. And that when he first became an apostle, a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus gave him that nickname. Can you imagine why? Let me give you one example. One time when Jesus was traveling through Samaria, the Samaritans didn't really want to have anything to do with Jesus. They weren't real hospitable to him. And so as they were leaving town, James and John, brothers, turned to Jesus and said, hey, you want us to call down fire on them? You want us to just wipe out the whole town right now? Because they didn't listen to you, Jesus. Sons of thunder. He had the nickname for a reason. Because there was a point in his life, I want you to listen to this. That there was a point in his life that when you read the gospel and you see the story of John, that even as a follower of Jesus, he felt like it was his job to also convict and punish those who didn't feel led to follow Jesus. He didn't necessarily always say loving things about them or have loving things to do with them. He felt like, you know, probably would be that type of person that if John had a Facebook page, it'd be filled with political posts and discussions about why everybody else is wrong about everything. You get that? But do you know what happened to John later in life? When you look at John's gospel and John's letters, and you even look at the book of Revelation, they're all just threaded all throughout with one very clear message, and it's love one another, love one another, love one another. Because when we begin to experience the love that God has for us, it changes our heart about ourselves and about how we have the capacity and the ability to love others. So John, one of the sons of thunder, who at one point in time just wanted, hey, let's just call down fire on all these people who don't think like me, act like me, walk like me, talk like me, believe like me, is now the person that says, love for your brothers and sisters, but you want what's good for them. So love is life. Love for a believer is also a marker. It's also something that we can look at. We can not necessarily measure it in quantifiable forms, but I can ask each and every one of you, do you have a love, a true and genuine love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for the people who are around you? Because 
what Jesus says to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven and is going or shortly before he ascends into heaven and is no longer with them. He says some very important words in John 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. What's happening in the church in Thessalonica? Paul is saying, look, man, y'all are loving on one another. You're doing great things. You need to continue to do these type of things. You need to continue to love. And this is what we're talking about. Love is a marker for us. If we don't have the ability to truly love our brothers and sisters, then that is something that we need to deal with in our heart and in our head and in our lives. Because Jesus gives us the ability to love. And if you remember earlier in the message, I asked you, what kind of fruit is this that pursuing God delivers in our life? You know, he says that some people want to follow the things of God and and it just gets snatched away. Some of them, you know, they, they grow up real fast, but then when things get tough, they fade away. And then other ones, you know, they, they start growing in the Lord, but they get kind of choked out by life. But then he mentions this fourth kind of soil, and he says these are the people who take the word of God, they apply it to their heart, they pursue and they follow God, and they begin to produce fruit. What does that fruit look like? Well, let me give you an example. Because love is a fruit of the Spirit. Love is a fruit of of the Spirit. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, see, I used this a, a while back when we were talking about this, everybody's favorite fruit of the Spirit known as self-control. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Bobby. Nobody else was awake on that one. So, uh, and none of us really like to think about self-control either. Because most of the time when we think about self-control, we think that that just means that I have to do better. I have to demonstrate more willpower. But no, when we read Scripture, it tells us very clearly that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. What does that mean? That means the more that I pursue God, then the more ability that I have to be able to do the right things and make the right decisions and even control my own self and my own desires. Well, guess what? Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23, you don't even have to read that far into it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. First one. It's also joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against the law, the law is not against such things. And so what we're talking about here is what is life? What is this life that Jesus invites me to? Well, if I were to say, hey, if you will pursue Jesus, you will find life. You might think, oh, man, what does that mean? Does that mean I'll have more money? Does that mean I'll have more friends? Does that mean I'll have more stuff? Okay, I don't know. But this is what I know, that if you will truly take the word of God, that you apply it to your heart, and you will strive to seek out and to follow him, this is what will happen. As you pursue God, these things will grow more in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, which one of those do you not want? Which one of those do you think wouldn't make your life better than it is today? See, this is the life that God offers. And he offers it by saying, you don't have to worry about how to do all these things on your own. All you have to do is to pursue me, and I will help you find life. This is why Paul talks about he wants them to increase their capacity to love one another. You're already doing good, church, but I want you to continue to do this and do better. That's why he says we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. Seek to lead a quiet life. 
mind your own business, work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Well, how do we do that? Well, I ask you this question. Are you pursuing a good life or are you pursuing a godly life? Because I promise you there's a difference. There's a difference at times. And so if you want to increase your capacity of love, what you need to know is I will seek a godly life, not only a good life. What do I mean by that? Well, okay, the best illustration that I can give, and it's an old one because I haven't done this in a long time, but I decided in my life at one point in time to try to run a marathon, and I did. I ran a marathon. And along the way, the goal, right, was to complete the marathon. That was my goal. And so I began to train, and I began to train, and I began to to work on this. Well, there are some benefits that happen because you're training to run a marathon. And so I actually started losing a lot of weight, and it was great because I was eating anything I wanted, but then I was still losing weight because I'm running all these distances. And I got this idea along the way that I really fell in love with the idea that I was losing weight, and I forgot that my goal was to actually finish the marathon. And so like a genius, I decided that while I'm training, I should also diet. (laughs) Don't try to run a real long way and not eat. I just thought I'd tell you that. Because about the second time I called my wife to go, I'm in a ditch on this road and my head's spinning and I can't see anymore. Can you come pick me up? The goal realized that you can't get distracted with the good things. You have to keep your mind on the goal. And the goal was to finish the marathon. And so I needed to do the things to actually complete that goal and not get distracted by just the good things. A lot of times we start pursuing the things of God and our life begins to change. And then we start trying to protect the changes that have happened, and we lose our trust and our faith in God, and we begin to pursue the French French benefits of following God, and we quit pursuing God himself. But scripture is very clear that when we pursue God, he takes care of everything else. So seek what is godly, not only what is good or convenient or good for you. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. What are all these things? Well, right before that, Jesus was saying, people run around going, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to do? How are we going to live life? And he says, look, just seek me first and I'll take care of everything else. So seek a godly life, not just a good life. And understand this, as I pursue God, that's when my capacity to love will grow. It's in the pursuit of of God. It's not by loving better or loving more or five steps to, you know, help your spouse out or anything else. It is only in the pursuit of God that you grow a capacity to love one another and to love God more. Paul writes this in Romans 5, 5. He says, this hope will not disappoint us. Our hope that we put in Christ, our faith that we put in Christ, it will not disappoint because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Meaning this, that because we're pursuing God, he's pouring himself out to us, that grows our capacity to love. This is an illustration I've seen before, but I think it makes such perfect sense. I use this, I want there to be in my spouse's life a love for God that is greater than the love that she has for me. And, And vice versa. She wants me to love God more than I love her because we understand that if, if she's living her own life and I'm trying to pursue her, that's tough. Or if I'm living my own life and I'm trying to pursue her, that's tough. But if we're both pursuing God, then we're growing closer together in our capacity to love and it works best that way. It's true in every relationship, whether it's a friend 
You think that by being a better friend means that you do everything that they want you to do or you agree with everything. That's not it at all. You pursue God and God grows your capacity to love even your friends, your neighbors, God himself, and even yourself. And this is what, this is what love is, that we lay down our life, meaning this, that when we say that we want to follow God, what we're saying is, okay, God, I'm going to take my idea of what I think would be this best life, and I'm going to set it aside, and I'm going to pursue you. And as I pursue you and your word, I'm going to trust that I'm going to experience life that I could never experience if I were just pursuing the things that I wanted for myself. And when I pursue God, then he grows my capacity to love one another. And again, I go back to the illustration that John is such a great example of that. As he continued to live for the Lord, we see that his capacity to love people just grew infinitely throughout his life. Same is true for us. But there's one last thing I want to say. It's one kind of major struggle for us. It's difficult for us at times to love our neighbors if we haven't first accepted that God loves me. And so if you first want to grow your capacity to love, you have to accept God's love for you. There's a, a verse that we share often here at First Baptist Church, Romans 5.8, says this, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, where people can, dis- the beautiful thing about that verse, we say around here, we wanna be the type of church where people can discover that they're already fully known and fully loved by God. You don't have to change anything about you. You don't have to, to be different. God already fully knows everything about your life, all the good, all the bad. And even in the midst of that, you are fully loved by God. Now, God also wants something different and greater for your life if you'll pursue and follow him. But you don't have to earn your way to God. You are already fully known and full. We didn't do anything to deserve it. God proves his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't do anything to deserve it. God just laid down his life so that we could know that he loves us. And if you haven't accepted that love, then your ability to love other people is incredibly limited, if not non-existent. Because it's only in pursuing God that we grow the capacity to love in such a full and fresh way in our life that it makes such an impact in the lives of others. So as we wrap this up today, let me just ask you this question. Do you have that capacity to love? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you pursuing him with everything that you have? And are you experiencing the life that he has for you? Or are you trying to do it a different way? Dismissed.